the Royal Australian Air Force in person, 1921 to 2021. Ad Astra Aviator. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. The narrator is Gareth McRae, OAM. Introducing Sergeant Brian Richards, ex-Royal Australian Air Force engine fitter and Vietnam veteran caribou loadmaster flight engineer. Brian graduated from the RAAF School of Technical Training in 1959. He signed up for 15 years when he was only 16 years old. By August 1963, Brian had completed four years in aircraft maintenance jobs and then signed on as a loadmaster on DHC-4 Caribous. Brian departed for Toronto, Canada in March of 1964 for conversion courses and to take part in ferrying the second three Caribous to Australia. The ferry flight took four weeks, arriving at AAF Base Richmond in June of 1964. In August of 1964, Brian was posted for 12 months to RAAF Transport Flight Vietnam as a loadmaster Caribous. It was the first deployment of Caribous into Vietnam and the establishment of operations placed the unit under huge pressure where resourcefulness and hard work made what became known as Wallaby Airlines a very successful and renowned unit amongst Aussies and allies. In September 1965, Brian travelled to Toronto, Canada again to ferry another Caribou to Richmond. Brian began another testing adventure in January 1966 when he joined the newly formed RAAF Detachment A, PNG. He then resumed his Air Force career as an engine fitter, culminating in March of 1971 with a posting to RAAF School Technical Training as a technical training instructor. He was back where he started, but this time imparting his knowledge. Brian discharged from the RAAF in January 1973 at the end of his 15 years. He then worked with Transavia, building the Transavia air truck and then became a Cummins diesel instructor. In 1977, Brian joined the New South Wales Bushfire Brigade and he is still a member. Sergeant Brian Richards, it's a great honour to have you as part of our series of RAAF podcasts. Are you doing well? Oh, yes, I'm uh, still vertical and I'm enjoying life. Well, that's, that's the way to go. Well, you were 16 years of age when you signed up. Why did you sign up? What was the, what was the motivation? I lived in a, up in a, amongst the coal mines in um, the Hunter Valley. This was talking about mid, mid-50s at this point in time and I was finishing my intermediate certificate at the time. I looked, I had two choices. One was to go down in the mines, of course it was all underground in them days, and the second one was to go to the steelworks in Newcastle. And this crowd come up advertising the uh, Air Force apprenticeship. I thought, that sounds good. So off I went. It certainly doesn't take you down in the mines. And you've got a different area. You've gone underground or up in the air. So that's that's a big compa- difference of comparison. Well, the apprenticeship, was that as, a, as an engine fitter? Was that what the role of the apprenticeship? 
Uh, there was myself and about 130 other first-year apprentices in them, them days. In the first year of our apprenticeship, you didn't know what trade you were going to do. I knew what I wanted to do, but I didn't know what I was actually going to do because after the first year, they sorted out what trades everybody was going into. So it was only in the second year that I actually found out that I was going to be an engine fitter, even though that's what I actually applied for in the first case. Oh, okay. So you've, you've lucky, one of the lucky ones, you actually got what you wanted when you went in. Yeah, yeah. Every now and then that happens. Every now. So you graduated from the RAA School of Technical Training in 1959. What was that course like? That changed my life forever. It was great. You know, in those days, there was still a bit of that uh, bastardisation going on. There were some people couldn't handle it, and they tried to get out. But, you know, I really enjoyed it. (laughs) It was good. And you learned a bit about everything, not just all about engines. You learned a lot about everything, including yourself. Would you say, from your memory, that that kind of course run by the RAAF has the ingredients that really do sort people out and fine-tune their skills in specific areas better than maybe some other courses elsewhere? Yes, but, but it's not only the skills in specific areas. It's, it's sorting yourself out to be part of a team and just to be go get it, to go and do it yourself, to be uh, a self-starter, to be uh, confident in what you could actually do. And when you look at where all the apprentices back in those days ended up, a lot of them ended up virtually running the Air Force. I don't mean right at the top, but I mean down on the ground where it actually, uh, you know, where your feet meet the ground. Yeah, sure. But it's been pointed out to me that within the Air Force, your rank, sergeant, and all those uh, grades above really are the people that make decisions that affect everybody. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, that's what I was sort of referring to because, you know, when I went to Vietnam, we're all happy to go. You spend all your life in the Air Force or the Army training, and all of a sudden you actually get to do what you're trained to do. I suppose these days they're always overseas doing what they're trained to do, but back then, you know, we sort of hung around. But, yes, it made you uh, more confident in yourself and certainly give you the skills, technical skills, and I I lived on those for the rest of my life. You spend all your time in the Air Force training, training, training. When you are then in a combat situation, do you find that that training you know, no longer focused on what I was trained to do. It just becomes an automatic thing. It's part of your DNA. Oh, yes. Yeah, you just do it. I spent about 45 years in the uh, rural fire service here, bushfire, firefighting. I find it's the same thing. You get to the fire ground or in Vietnam, you get to do what you do. You don't think about it. You just do it. If you thought about it, you probably wouldn't do it. Yeah, but, of course. You know, you just do it. It's 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 natural. It comes natural to you. The second point in that is that you learn to trust your team. You learn to trust the bloke next to you. You learn to trust, in my case, you learn to trust the pilots. I never was at a time when I didn't trust the people I was working with because I knew, like me, you where they were at. On graduation, you're now... Fully-fledged member of the RAAF, where were you appointed to? What happens? What happens after graduation for you? Well, January 1960, I went into uh, 2AD, the engine rebuild section in uh, Richmond, in which we overhauled all the aspects of the uh, radial engines at the time. I spent a year there, because in actual fact, in those days, that was the fourth year of my five-year apprenticeship. The fifth year, I initially went to 486 Squadron on Hercules, but I was only there a few months and I had to go to hospital, have an operation on my shoulder for an injury that happened in Wagga. So then in uh, about April 
1961, I come out of hospital and I went to 38 Squadron on Dakota's Richmond. That was great. That was the best move of my life, going to 38 Squadron. In what way? Well, it was interesting. They, they, you kept doing things. Um, there weren't a lot of us. It wasn't, it wasn't a big squadron, but we operated the Dakotas. Ground crew used to go, a couple of ground crew always used to go to the Dakotas when they went away. So I went all over Australia and uh, into New Guinea and flying. It was so interesting. And, and again, I don't know, it was great. It was a good team of people. The work was good. We enjoyed ourselves. 1964, uh, sorry, 1963, we were told we we're going to get caribous. And uh, so I applied for the loadmaster's job. And so we finished an air movements course in late 1963. And then I then we started flying with Dakotas as, as a loadmaster. Whilst we did, of course, ever have loadmasters on Dakotas, it was just to give us some experience. Yeah, Brian, if I could just interrupt on that point, uh, someone listening to you right now who may be not a member of the RAAF or any of the Defence Forces is going to say to yeah. him or herself, what is a loadmaster? So what is a loadmaster? A loadmaster generally is a fellow that looks after the freight version of the aircraft, everything behind the bulkhead, separating you from the pilots, all the loading, the dispatching, the weight and balance, the tie-downs, everything that happens down the back. Like the pilots get it there and you load it and unload it or dispatch the stuff out the back if that's the case. Loadmaster on a caribou was different. Loadmaster on a caribou, we were all technical people, either engines or airframes. That was our job because the crew of a caribou was three people, pilot, co-pilot, loadmaster. And in theory, we were supposed to be able to go away for about two months, two or three months, and look after ourselves, completely self-contained. And in New Guinea, that's what we did. Like I went up there the first detachment A in 1966, January, February. We went away for two months, and there was just the two pilots and myself. So we had to also look after the aircraft itself. So that's why we're all technical people. Does that mean the pilot and the co-pilot also could have made repairs to the plane that they were currently flying? There are three of you. Surely it's not just your responsibility to fix a propeller or fill up the oil or put petrol in or whatever. Do you all do it or what happens? Oh, no. If they did that, I wouldn't fly in it. No. Look, okay, they might hand up the oil can, but no, no, the loadmaster did it all. And, of course... I was lucky. In my day, we had new aircraft. You know, they weren't 20 years old and beat sure, to death. Sure, You call yourself a loadmaster, but that really also makes you an engineer of some kind as well, does it not? Or a mechanic or whatever you want to call that person. Yes. Well, after my time, the Caribous, they changed the name to flight engineer. So, and that so, flight engineer role also included what you did as a loadmaster. That was part of the new title. So, well, it was, was, was the same job. Same job, same job. Now, as a loadmaster, does that make you responsible not only for hardware, well, bolt stuff, but also personnel, people, troops? Well, everything behind the bulkhead. Okay, so the troops are behind the bulkhead. You have to be responsible for getting them in and getting them out. Correct. Yes, that's, that, that's how it works. 1962 was uh, the first time the press suddenly became conscious of the country Vietnam. Now, Australians aren't there in 1962 per se, but we're conscious of it. As a member of the Defence Force, you're in the Air Force, was it discussed among you all about what's happening there? Could it possibly have involved us? Was there any discussion of any kind about Vietnam before you actually got there? 
No, no, really the first time Vietnam came to the fore for me and most, or majority of us, was in Butterworth on the way back from Canada. We were, we were laying down, uh, having a bit of a rest because this was the second ferry flight from Canada. There were three caribous. And we landed in Butterworth and we had to do a 100-hour service. So we were there for a week or so um, doing this service. And resting one afternoon, we listened to the ABC, you know, the overseas service, which is something we learnt to listen to all the time because that's where the only place we ever found out what was going on. We listened to the ABC and uh, we heard that they were sending six caribous, six crews. At that point in time, we only had six caribous and six train crews. So we did our maths and figured, oh, yeah. And sure enough, uh, three weeks later, we are back in Butterworth waiting for the next three aircraft on the delivery flight to take them to Vietnam. Okay. So that's the first time really uh, learned anything about uh, Vietnam. There's a good ad for ABC News. People should start listening to ABC News to find out what's happening. Before we actually get to Vietnam, the caribou, what involvement did you have in bringing the caribous from wherever they came from to Australia? The first delivery crew went to Canada in January 64. You're there for two months and that's... The first six crews, that's the first delivery flight and the second delivery flight, we did our conversion course in Canada at De Havilland's in Toronto. The loadmasters learnt something technically about the aircraft, what they were. Not a lot different from the uh, Dakota, so it wasn't too bad. The pilots learned how to fly them. We then delivered those home. It took us a month, actually, to get them home. So what's involved in getting them home? I mean, you don't just fly them here? How do you, they yeah, work? yeah, you just fly them here. Why did but, it take four weeks? Uh, well, we carried two 500-gallon fuel tanks in big rubber bladders inside the fuselage, plus a 205-litre, or back in them days, a 44-gallon drum of oil and a hand pump. Some of the legs we done were 15 hours long. So it's a long time in an aircraft without, a, without an automatic pilot because they are a short-haul aircraft. You've got to fly them all the way. You've got to hang on all the way. They don't fly themselves. We left Toronto, flew to Newfoundland, Gander in Newfoundland, where we had a propeller problem, had to change the propeller. And I changed that propeller in a snowstorm. <laughs> but anyway, we went from there to uh, Gander in um, the Azores. We got lost on the way. Our navigator sent us towards Greenland instead, of course, to the Azores because he... He put the correction in the wrong way in the Northern Hemisphere. And we were in, oh, we were icing up. I had icicles hanging from the interior of the aircraft, looking at icebergs down there. But anyway, we finally figured out we were in the wrong track. We got the Azores. From there, we went into Gibraltar. We spent the night in Gibraltar. All the Russians were in the fleet. Because remember, this is 1964 in the middle of the Cold War. Yep. We were refueling there, and the RAF refueler, in Gibraltar said to us, he said, oh, we got a, a surprise exercise coming up. He said, oh, how do you know that if it's a surprise exercise? He said, oh, the Russians are in town. There's all these Russian trawlers with all these aerials all over them sitting in the harbour. So that's how they knew there's a surprise exercise coming on. We listened to the ABC. They just looked at the trawlers. We went from there to Malta, then from Malta to El Adam, which is the Air Force, the RAF base at Trebrook in Libya. And at that point in time, we were supposed to go from there to um, Khartoum, but we couldn't. We were advised not to go to Khartoum because we could end up in jail. You know, things weren't nice <laughs> in yep. those days. Yep. So we decided we'd fly direct to Aden in Yemen. 
Aiden's a long way. That leg was a little over 15 hours. But we couldn't fly direct there because the, the direct flight took us over Egypt, over Egyptian airspace. And at that point in time, NASA was having a visit from Khrushchev. And so Egyptian airspace was closed. So we had to fly around the bottom, this big bunch of bowlers in the, uh, the southwestern corner of Egypt, which they called in the days NASA's nuts. So we had to fly around those and then on to Aden. So that was a 15-odd-hour leg. And at that point in time also, the RAF, the English, were in um, Yemen, Yemen fighting the rebels. So we had a curfew at night and there's hunter, hawker hunters flying out, shooting up people. And, and again, we had a propeller problem. And also, we had a leak in one of my the fuel bags in my aircraft, so we had to dump that fuel bag, which reduced our flying time, obviously, because we lost 500 gallons. But the propeller and tools were dispatched from Canada, but they got lost somewhere. Two days later, we got the propeller, but it was oh, 11 days before the tools arrived. So we were stuck there for 13 days. And so then we left there, we went to Karachi, and then we went to Calcutta, and then we flew down to Butterworth, where we did a 100-hour service and learnt we were going to Vietnam. We then flew from there. We went down to Jakarta. And we landed in Jakarta six months after they'd burnt the British embassy down. Because you know, this was at the time in history. And we were escorted off the airstrip with soldiers with machine guns and so on. And we see these MiGs taxiing past us at the airstrip with these tall, blonde-headed Indonesians called Boris and Ivan flying them. So after that, we went to Denpasar in Bali. Now, when we arrived there, there's this big Russian helicopter on the ground and the Russians were extending the airstrip. We were interned at that point in time because we weren't supposed to be there. We were only there because my aircraft didn't have enough fuel to fly direct to Darwin. It took us about an hour and a half to get out of that place. We were fortunate because Chris Sugden, our CO, the squadron leader, he happened to be in Indonesia the same time the commander of the local Indonesian army fellow was when the Dutch and Indonesians and they were talking about separating. So because they were in the same spot at the same time, this fellow, he let us go. So we had 10 minutes to get out of the place. We left there. We flew to Darwin. And from Darwin, the other two aircraft flew direct to Richmond because they could make it in one hop. We had to land in wrong reach before we got home. Yeah, so that was all yeah. in all. It took so a month. It, it sounds like that venture was even more challenging than actually going to Vietnam. Oh, Vietnam was a snack. Yeah, but compared to that, <laughs> you talked about the propeller problems. Do you find that that four-week stint may be been an advantage to you because you were able to solve a lot of problems that the air, aircraft had before you actually took it into combat? So was that a positive rather than a negative? On the technical side, yes. Uh, but as far as being a loadmaster, like the main part of your job, no, because... You didn't load and unload. You just, you just flew. Well, okay, and, uh, but you also oh, fixed the you fixed the propeller. Oh yes. Well, in actual fact, we did two propellers on that trip back. I never failed one propeller during actual operations in Vietnam or after that, except again coming back from Canada on the uh, another ferry flight in in '65. Whereas uh, we lost a propeller coming across the Pacific. We flew seven hours on one engine. Did you remain in Vietnam? Did you remain with the same caribou most of the time? No, no, you just took whatever was there. The only time you stuck with an aircraft for any length of time was we used to do a week in Nha Trang, and there was just the three. The two pilots and myself would go to Nha Trang. We'd operate for a week out of Nha Trang, 
and then you'd be back operating out of Vong Tau Saigon for a week. Then you went up to Da Nang for a week, the three of you, and you operated there for a week. Then okay. you come back and did a week out of Saigon, and you just kept rotating like that. So for sure. those weeks, yes, you had the same aircraft. I would like now, because people are going to listening to you say, hey, aren't they going to talk about Vietnam? Yes, we are going to talk about Vietnam as of right now. <laughs> so you, you are sent to Vietnam. You flew into Vuong Tau from Butterworth in 1964. On arrival, what were your realisations? What was your observation for us? Well, it looked a bit third world. <laughs> yeah, we arrived in Vong Town. Of course, it's all PSP, perforated steel plating uh, airstrip. There wasn't a, a sealed airstrip. Most of the buildings there must have been from the French. The other people who were operating there, of course, was the uh, Army. The American Army had their caribous there. There are also those little Mohawk twin-engine um, aircraft operating there and some helicopters. Our area was pretty well away from the Americans on the side. It was pretty rough and ready, I suppose you could say. And our accommodation was tents, an army bunks on tents beside a sewage farm. It was a bit rough, and we we flew long hours in those first days. And, of course, we never had an assistant. So I was on, as a lad master, I was on my own. And we'd fly up to 10 missions a day. And you're loading and unloading five to 7,000 pound of freight 10 times a day, you're hot and sweaty on the ground and then you get cool when you get in the air. They were long days and they were hard. And I wasn't as fit as I was later <laughs> in them days. I can remember one morning, uh, sorry, one evening, we got back because we'd leave before sun up. We'd arrive home after dark. So they were long days. I can remember I was sitting in my bunk, taking my flying boots off. And about two hours later, I woke up, still sitting on my bunk, still taking my flying boots off. And uh, it wasn't long after that, Chris Sargon, our CEO, said, these accommodation, this is no good, we've got to get out of here. And we finally went into, the, into our villa in town. And, of course, we had to convince the people in Australia that, hey, we're not with the Americans anymore because we were paying them to keep us. And uh, so for the first couple of months we were there, we all paid our own rent at this villa in town that we, uh, we leased. You paid your own rent, not the Air Force didn't pay it, you paid it. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. The Air Force was paying the Americans to look after us for accommodation and meals. Initially, there were only 50 odd of us, about 56 of us. They didn't set up our own um, logistic lines. We paid the Americans for per hour of the aircraft for fuel and spares. We paid the Americans per head of population <laughs> per day for meals and accommodation. We, uh, we used American weapons. We uh, leased them from America. We leased ground vehicles from America. So basically, we were, look, we were using their logistics. The Australian uh, in Canberra were paying the Americans so much for that. Actually, they used to call us mercenaries. They reckon they were paying our way. <laughs> to what extent did you need to have to work out how to operate the caribou in, in this particular environment? Because you've only just ferried the caribous there. So what sort of learning curve was it like to learn how to actually operate the confounded aircraft? Very steep because we virtually didn't know how to operate it. From my point of view, it was uh, loading and unloading, uh, doing a lolex. I did the first lolex in Australian caribou. Uh, how to drop big surprise. You know, I'd never dropped cattle or pigs and ducks before. It was, it was a very steep learning curve. We actually, and the, for the pilots, you know, they'd flown them all right, but they'd flown them from Canada, so they had 100 hours on the aircraft, but it was just a ferry flight. 
they had to learn how to get into these little airstrips, how to do the full stall. And they developed those techniques quickly because you didn't get them right. Someone had a shot at you uh, very quickly, but on the job. And I think our experience in New Guinea and the Dakotas set the pilots up pretty well for being able to fly in that environment, the funny strips and that. Although the strips in New Guinea were good compared with a lot of the strips we went to in New, uh, Vietnam. But yes, it was a very steep learning curve. We learned a lot of bad habits because we'd never done. I'd never loaded a caribou properly with freight before I got there. That was the first time I'd ever done that. I had to figure out how to tie it down, how to get the weight and balance, how to judge by looking at a freight at a load how heavy it was because you just get this stuff and you just figure out how heavy it is. Well, I've, got a, I've got a silly, silly question. You mentioned cattle. How do you load and then unload Cattle. What, did you have to land the plane to, or did you, did you parachute <laughs> well, them out? What was the process? Well, there was two different ways. You could land and unload them or you could drop them out in a box. Uh, dropping them out in a box nearly killed me one day. But they'd bring these cattle up. There was a rope in a nose ring. That's how we led them onto the aircraft. And you look at them. So, oh, yeah. so you tie the nose ring rope to one of the seat belts and the cattle just stood there. They flew well. They used to brace themselves on takeoff, brace themselves when you, when you banked around. When you land at the other end, you put the ramp down and out they take go. them away. What about the in the ramp. box? What about in the box? Do they survive being in a box and, and dropped out of a plane? Well, I never actually got to ask one, but I. I but sometimes, <laughs> initially, they used to break a lot of legs, apparently, when they dropped them out on parachute. But then they got to be able to put them in these box uh, and strap them underneath the, their stomach onto the parachute you know, through the box lid. Right, yeah. They, they, they uh, had a far better survival rate. The reason we used to drop in livestock was these places were out in the out in the bush and they never had refrigeration. And so they only got resupplied once a month. So they took the cattle, pigs, ducks in live and butched them as they needed them. And that's why we used to take them in live. Tell me about the experience you had with the box the cattle, and almost going out the back of the aeroplane. We'll drop A-Row, this little airstrip up in a little place up in uh, the north of um, South Vietnam. It was the first time I'd ever dropped a cow out the back, and, and then a box, and because it's long, and it's almost as long, the box is almost as long as the caribou is wide. And, of course, it's tall. It only had probably about 18 inches to the roof of the um, caribou. And I'm loading this thing up. Again, with no training and all this sort of stuff, I figured, well, how am I going to drop this thing out? Do I put it lengthwise or crosswise? And if I put it lengthwise, I thought, well, maybe the back end of the box will drop first and the top will come up and hit the roof of the aircraft and uh, damage something. So I thought, oh, well, I'll put it in crosswise because then it'll just fly at the back. And, of course, these are on rollers on the back, in the back of the aircraft. We get to our loading zone, like our drop zone. We drop all our pigs and ducks first. Up comes this cow, so I'm myself an assistant, you know, because we had the assistants who used to help us. So there's actually a crew of four on the caribou up there. And so we lowered, we rolled it down the back of the aircraft. And, of course, at this point in time, the pilot decided he's going to do a left-hand turn, do the circuit to come back and drop again. And, of course, as soon as he turns left, there's a bit of a G-force, and this cow was a lot heavier than both of us could actually stop from rolling at the back. So it's rolling at Silly me, I'm at the back of the box between me and the back, big opening of the back of the <laughs> aircraft, and we're going down towards the back, towards the back, then all of a sudden, pull a bit of gene, there's no way we were going to stop that box going at the back. So I couldn't jump up the side of the, the box because there just wasn't enough room, I could get caught up. So I actually jumped out over the top of the box, scrambled over the top, and I actually landed on the ramp 
as the box went out the back. So I never loaded them that way again. (laughs) (laughs) What kinds of things was the caribou tasked to carry and what specific problems may have been associated with the different types of things you were tasked to carry? When I was there... Uh, with Chris Sugden, it's gone to Sugden. The only task that we're asked to do that he knocked back that I'm aware of was ranch hand. And ranch hand was the uh, spraying of Agent Orange. We're ever grateful to Chris for knocking back that task. But anything else they asked us to do, we did. We dropped troops, uh, paratroops out, Vietnamese paratroops out. When we used to leave uh, Vong Tao, because the airborne people troops were based in Vong Tao. And on our way to Saigon, we would take a, a stick of troops up and drop them out on our way to Saigon for our day's missions because we were the only ones who would drop them out. The Americans wouldn't do it. They didn't trust them. Uh, there was always the, the word, heard the stories about the last fellow out would throw in a hand grenade. So they would drop them but because they come and ask us would we drop them out because otherwise these troops wouldn't get a, you know, ever get out the sure, aeroplane. Sure. So we used to do that, and actually on one of those missions was the first time I actually come face-to-face with the enemy that I actually knew wasn't on my side because he tried to kill me. Tell us about that. Well, we'd, we'd go up, and you'd go up, and there'd be an American advisor, then the stick of troops, about 20 troops, and a jump master. And the jump master was always um, a uh, Vietnamese. And we'd go up, the, the American would go out first, and then the stick of troops would go out, and then the jump master. Well, of course, the jump master would stand there with his parachute on, but he'd have his strap, like the hook-up strap, across his shoulder because he couldn't hook up to the cable because otherwise the other troops, their bags would pull it out the back of the aircraft. Of course, the cable that the straps hooked up to for the static line jumps went from the front of the cabin at the bulkhead to or to the back left-hand side of the aircraft outside the door, the other side of the ramp. So he couldn't hook up until the last troop left. Then he'd hook up and he'd jump out. So I'm standing there, and of course you're supposed to wear a harness hooked up to the aircraft as the loadmaster. But as I said, we developed a lot of bad habits up there because, you know, we just made it up as we went along. And I'm standing there at the back, you know, watching these boats come out, and the last one turned around and he grabbed me and he grabbed the jump master and tried to pull us out the back of the aircraft. And, well, you can imagine that sort of up, upset me a little. Oh, woke me, just a tad. And woke me up, and I grabbed all of what I could at the back of the aircraft, which was basically the, the uh, back door mechanism at the side of the aircraft. And I'm kicking this bloke, and the jump master had hold of me, and he's kicking him. We finally kicked him out the back. The jump master said something in Vietnamese. I dare say it wasn't very pleasant. Hooked up, pulled out his forty-five, and jumped. And that's it. That's <laughs> I didn't hear any more about that. Obviously, that last person was part of the set of troops that was on the plane of the yeah. caribou to be dropped. So obviously, the infiltration would sounds like it was reasonably easy for a Viet Cong to get into that, so he could have done what he did. Is that a fair assessment? Oh yeah, most guerrilla things. They didn't fight. They didn't fight in a uniform. They, uh, they were just Vietnamese. Didn't know who was on whose side was who. It was all. It was always that way. You never knew. You just had to trust your instincts. So obviously, the Americans, obviously refusing to drop out paratroopers, had had that experience inflicted on them as well. One would assume you know, yes, throwing, or, or, throwing the grenade or, in as he jumped out. Yes, we also heard they wouldn't let them refuel their aircraft. The Americans wouldn't let them refuel the aircraft. There was, uh, again, a couple of uh, Dakota. They get a hand grenade, you wrap the lever down with some uh, sticky tape, pull the pin out, and you drop it in the fuel tank. And it takes about 
20 minutes or so for the sticky tape to dissolve. Wow. Well, that's why yeah. the aircraft's gone. Really, I'm, I know your experiences are not of Korea and World War Two, but being in Vietnam is a whole new range of dangers that would not have existed in previous wars where you knew who your enemy was. Very true. Apart from the problems of actually flying the missions, getting in and out of the aircraft, out of the strips and so on, in the back of your mind was always that, you know, is he one of us or is he one of them? Actually, I think we actually got to fly a whole plane load of uh, shotguns for the Vietnamese of Viet Cong one day. I can't say for sure, but it certainly seemed like that to me by the people who were picking them up and mm. flew with me. You said a little while ago we were tasked, we were given, we were asked, we were we, we, we. Who was doing the asking? Basically, we worked for the Special Forces, especially in Da Nang and Nha Trang. We used would lie there and we did all the loading and unloading for Special Forces because they were the ones who used to have at all these camps out the, the jungles and so on. There were usually about six or eight American Special Forces and all the rest of Vietnamese. We were back there in the early days and they didn't have these big encampments of Americans that the later caribou blokes flew stuff for. Sure, so we sure. were basically flying for the Special Forces. I've been led to believe that your CO, you've mentioned him a couple of times, he was a just-do-it kind of person. Is that a... Oh, yeah. He said, just find a way and do it. And we all... Had, and that was great. And that's where it all come back to this three years I had in Wagga. You learnt just to do it. You had confidence in yourself that you could do it. I never... I was never, I suppose, not sure about what I was doing. I was always confident in what I was doing. And fortunately, the two fellows up the front, they're always confident that I could do it. And it surprised me. You've mentioned one close risk with death with that person you uh, kicked and they eventually get a, got him out of the plane. What about the situation where you ended up in a parachute into the water? Yeah, that was great. Again, that was because of our association with this airborne group. The American from the airborne asked Chris, did we want to have a jump, a parachute jump? And Chris, is that or Chris asked him, could we do it? I'd, and that wouldn't surprise me either, knowing Chris. So we said, he said, yeah. So we organised it for on the weekend, and everyone, ground crew, a couple of girls from the Australian Embassy, we all they come up the Vong Tau, and we all jumped out of the back of the aeroplane into the water, out of back beach, in, into the water. And the uh, American special forces, they had a, they to operate these junks. They were pretty much junk, but they were junks, and they would stand off the beach, pick us out of the water, and we had this old wooden speedboat that uh, would pick us up from the junk, take us along, and as we go along the beach just outside the waves, we'd all roll off the side like they see them in the movies and swim to the beach. It was great. It was, it was really good, except I defy anyone to do in the time they told us to be able to do it. They said, okay, because we had a 10-minute exercise in the hangar, listen to this American telling us what to do. And that was our training. At least I'd done a jump master's course before I went to Vietnam. But you jump out and they say, when you're 50 feet from the ground, unclip your harness, hang in the shoulder, just the shoulder straps. And when your feet touch the water, arch your back, put your hands up and your parachute will float off. <laughs> I defy anyone to do that in 50 feet. And uh, yeah, one of our lone masters actually landed on top, it landed in the back of a junk, or landed on the deck of one of the junks. Hey, well, he didn't have to be picked up then. That's what. No, no, <laughs> he, they just they picked him off the ground. But, oh, you know, they were fishing us out of the water like fish, you know, they were still wrapped up in our parachutes. Tell know. us a little bit more about your CO. You, from the couple of references you've made, you obviously had a great deal of respect for him. We all did. 
he was a great person who'd let let you work it out, let you do it. Now, he wouldn't be telling you what to do. Very little, I can't remember really him ever telling me what I should be doing. He just let you do it, which was great. Great for your confidence, you know, and you were able to work it out. I suppose he didn't know any better than I did on what to do down the back, but he had the confidence in me and we had the confidence in him. Everybody had enormous respect for him. I think he was the best person they could have chosen to take us up there, especially initially because there was no set procedures. We didn't know what we were doing. We had to work it out as we went along. And he was the type of person who'd say, okay, we're going to do this, let's do it. Let's and do it. And get on and yeah. do it. Whereas as time went on, it'd become more formal, more regimented, more Air Force, you might say. Sure. Rather than a bunch of backpackers up there and enjoying themselves. What was the relationship of your teams, teams plural, with the United States personnel? Oh, we had, again, nothing but respect from them. It was uh, very good. The Special Forces people that we dealt with all the time, they knew if they had a job that needed to do and they could ask us, then we'd do it. And if we could get in, we'd get in. And if we couldn't get in, no one was going to get in. So, no, a lot, a lot of respect. We were never questioned at all by any, any of them. And as a matter of fact, they always thought, you know, if they needed something to do and they'd ask us, they wouldn't ask their own army to mm. come in and do it because they, we probably didn't know any better to refuse. <laughs> Brian, do you have grandchildren? Oh, yes. Let me ask this question. If one of your, if the youngest of your grandchildren came up to you and said, Pa, tell me about Vietnam, what was it like? What would your answer be? Oh, well, I have asked that question. So I can tell you what the answer was and said, oh, great. And you tell them some stories. Like, I basically, I think we all of us up there basically enjoyed it because, you know, we were prepared for it with all the training, not not specific, but we went and did it and, and it wasn't that bad for us. It was a lot worse for the later people because they started getting North Vietnamese down there and they started getting weapons that could actually do some damage, whereas, like, we used to do flare drops, which they cancelled after a few months because it was too dangerous. And we used to go out and do that. Silly us, we'd fly along there, dropping these couple of million candle power flares out the back, thinking the people on the ground couldn't see us. And I'm out looking at the back and you can see these lights coming towards you. And I said to and Chris was the pilot, I said to him, I said, I said, they're shooting at us. He said, how do you know? I said, I can see the tracer. And he said, is it moving? I said, yeah. He said, well, don't worry about that. It's the one that's getting big that you've got to worry about. I can tell you, every light I saw from then on was getting big. That was dangerous. Now, they, they stopped that. Was asked of us, and Chris said, yes, we'd do it. And away we went. Mm. Has your grandchild ever said to you, Pa, what didn't you like about Vietnam? No, not really. All right, no. well, I'm your now grandchildren asking you, what didn't you like, Brian, uh, Pa, about Vietnam? The food. I couldn't eat breakfast for years after I come home because back then we relied on the American to feed us. Now, we'd take off before the mess opened in, in Von Tau. And we'd get back after the mess closed. So I'd have a can of Coke. And if we were lucky enough, like in Saigon, I could get a poor boy, which is a dry bread roll with a bit of bully beef, a bit of spam or something on it, and maybe an ice cream. That was breakfast. Dinner, I'd walk uptown, hopefully buy a bread roll and a banana, and again, beer and Coke. That was dinner. So you never ate Never ate properly all the time we were there. Later on, of course, Australians got their own mess, so you could have a 24-hour mess. But with Australians, we were in an operational situation, but the Americans never had a 24-hour mess in Long Town. How long was your deployment? Oh, it's only there for uh, eight months. 
Because I'd only just got home from being away three months. They cut our stay a little bit short. I come home two days or a day after Chris Sugden come home, like the first group. It's funny, I got married on the 30th of March 1963. I left for Canada on the 30th of March 1964. I arrived home from Vietnam on the 30th of March 1965. The relationship that you formed in Vietnam with the various personnel you were there, particularly your CO, has that been maintained since? There's not many of us left of the originals. The original air crew, I think there's only three of us left, four of us left. I'm the only loadmaster left, and I think there's Don Pollock. Uh, I know there's a few more pilots. They, they, a few more of them have survived the, uh, survived the time. But, no, we don't get together that often. When we do, like last time was actually last year in uh, Ambley where they had a retreat for the... Uh, and I particularly wanted to go to that because the aircraft that they'd sort of restored was the aircraft that I brought back from Canada the second time. So it was right. good to go up there. And John Lindner, who was another pilot still around, and he he went up as well, and he was one of the pilots. The other one, unfortunately, uh, Gary Martin, he died. I went to his funeral a few years ago. So it was interesting to go back to that aircraft. So on those reunions... Is the only time, but we're pretty scattered apart. And there's not a lot of us. No, that, that's fair enough. And Brian, what's your relationship with the Caribou like in terms of memory? Is it something you've loved? Oh, yeah. Best aircraft they ever built. It was the aircraft for the time. Like, it would be no good today. They'd shoot it out of the air pretty quick. But for its time, it was the perfect job. was able to do everything that was really asked of it and that really no other aircraft at the time could do. I believe in 1971 you went back to school, but now you're an instructor. What were you an instructor in? Engines, of course. I was posted to Point Cook, uh, 1FTS, after I decided to ground myself and do me three years caribou. I decided to go back to the ground. We wanted to start a family, and I was never home, so I said, okay, no more. And they posted me to Point Cook. Now, the last year I was at Point Cook, I was training pilots on ground operations. So I spent 12 months there training uh, new pilots on ground operations. And then they decided that as soon as I was doing the training, they'd better send me to Wagga to do an instructional technique course. I went to Wagga to do the instructional technique course, and, of course, they upgraded the attachment to a posting. So I was end up in uh, Wagga training apprentices and adult trainees on engines, and I found out what little buggers those apprentices were. <laughs> Yeah, not that you you were you were an angel, of course. When you oh no no no, we were different back then, though. <laughs> yeah, of course, naturally, naturally. And the 1977, you've already mentioned it once. You've become a member of what I think is perhaps just like a person in the armed forces, a member of the New South Wales Bush Fire Brigade. That's correct, and I'm uh, still a member. I've attended most of the big fires in New South Wales and a few in Victoria. So these days, like I'm 82 and I don't go out chasing smoke anymore. I figure that's a young man's sport. But I found the bushfire brigade was a lot like the Air Force, the camaraderie, you know, the, the, green, yep. the group, the team, the, re, the reliance on each other and just getting the job done. Sergeant Brian Richards, it's been an absolute privilege and honour being able to chat with you. I've learned things about Vietnam and it's our engagement there that I never knew before and particularly understand now the very important role that the caribou played. But more importantly, people like you and the one of three, only one of three, on a plane in one of our most significant conflicts in the 20th century. So, Brian, congratulations on your career. Thank you very much for your time and thank you for what you've done for Australia. Thank you. Actually, I enjoyed it. (laughs) Thank you. Globally, the RAAF has between 500 and 700 people on operations every day, contributing to 
coalition operations, peacekeeping and humanitarian and disaster relief. The RAAF takes pride in its service. It has a history of endeavour and sacrifice, which has won it a place in the hearts of all Australians and a position of respect among the armed services of all Australia's allies. The RAAF will never tarnish its record. It carries on in the proud tradition of Per Adua Ad Astra. This is a series of podcasts recounting the personal stories of veterans and their families. Produced by Air Force Association New South Wales, which is a registered charity that focuses on the well-being of Air Force veterans and their families. If you would like to donate funds to help us with this important work, you can search Air Force Association New South Wales in Google and go to our website.